and I don't want to put down the Patriots, but it was kind of nice to see some underdogs in my book. I don't know a lot about it, but some underdogs come up. Oh, no. Hello, 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 and welcome back to Center Ed Teaching. The last couple of weeks, we've kind of gone through some tough ideological and philosophical questions about school choice movements and school segregation, and today we're going to return to some nitty-gritty um, politics and policies. When Wait, we... what? What is this? <laughs> what is this, Matt? I, I don't know, Roberta. What is it? I'm pretty sure it's a policy pod! <laughs> Woohoo! Um, it is a policy pod, as yes. Roberta shared with us. Um, and so today we're going to talk about some of the mandate updates and we're going to talk about specifically in New York state, because given as we've talked about in this podcast previously, the every student succeeds act really turns things away from, um, federal mandates for, uh, adequate yearly progress and these other measures and returns them to the state. So by doing this case study of the state, we hope to give a framework for how you can think about what's happening in your school district, what's the legislation that's influencing that, um, possibly where to look, and then what are some of the implications of things that are going on in New York, but that are also going on in other states. Um, so one of the biggest changes that I guess we can start with in New York, and this one's not as new, is that there's the change from Common Core to Next Generation Learning Standards. Um, what are they? Why does this matter? start us off. Well, I guess it could be considered one of the biggest changes, <laughs> but I'm not really so sure that it's going to have a big impact, at mm. least from what I can see. I'm curious. Um, I've been looking a little bit at the ELA standards, which are quote-unquote for the next generation, and um, I can't personally see a lot of differences. There's some nice streamlining and combining of some of the standards. So, for example, standards used to be broken into reading literature and reading informational texts, and those are being streamlined and combined, which I think is nice. I think it's a little bit easier for teachers. We're not um, breaking down the genres so firmly, and I think that's a good thing for teaching. Um, and also, the one thing that I kind of like, although I don't know if it has a big impact, is that the English standards are talking about lifelong learners. Hey, what a concept! And enjoying literature and reading culturally relevant literature. So, whether or not it has an impact, there is a nod to students enjoying school and enjoying mm -hmm. literacy. Um, and I, I think that's not a bad thing. Uh, math, I have not taken a close enough look at. I assume that the changes are not that different. Yeah, I mean, in math, we're seeing a lot of the same thing that they changed the name. Um, right. But the standards themselves are relatively similar. Uh, some language is different. Um, the biggest thing that's of note is that there are specific standards that are have been excluded. Mm. Um, you know, I think that. But you're you're really looking at um, very specific content standards that I think that the state ed department is saying we're no longer going to be assessing distinctly for these standards. I'm I'm looking about like ten, twelve. Mm -hmm. uh, maybe 15 math standards um, out of, you know, hundreds um, that are, have been uh, excluded. Mm -hmm. And then others, um, there are some changes in um, the focus or in how, what students are supposed to produce as a result of that, whether or not mm -hmm. they need to apply it or analyze um, the information. But, you know, consistent with the ELA, there isn't that much of a difference um, between the standards. I think one of the things that I would say I'm a little disappointed in is that for the title of the standards to mm -hmm. be considered the next generation standards, <laughs> yeah, exactly. as we're having conversations about 21st century skills and the 21st century student, and I, I actually don't see anything in either subject uh, around the looking at 21st century skills as mm -hmm. being a, a key factor here. There are there are no specific um, standards that are really focusing on the importance of communication, elaboration, creativity, mm -hmm. uh, collaboration. Um, there's certainly no more additional uh, standards around technology or the use of technology mm -hmm. or how technology plays a role in learning. And while I don't think that technology or any particular app or uh, you know, software is considered 21st century, I think that it, it's somewhat... Um, 
obvious mm-hmm. to exclude one of the major forms of communication in our next generation mm-hmm. standards. In fact, our next generation standards look a lot like the last yeah. generation standards. So I, I'm, um, you know, I think that the the release of the next generation standards is going to have the impact that it desires, which is to do the same thing under a different name. I agree. I think this whole question of which generation, what is it a next generation? Is it the past? I I totally agree. I don't, I think it's a misnomer. Well, you had also brought up the idea of assessing, which I guess is what, you know, is really important because these Mm -hmm. standards exist now in the educational landscape that we live in to be used as accountability measures. So given that uh, the New York state plan has been accepted by the Department of Education at the federal level this year, um, what do the accountability measures look like? What subjects do they cover? How is this academic performance calculated? Uh, I mean, what does this look like kind of at the end? So previously, um, all of the state's expectations for schools has been consistent with No Child Left Behind, which identified that schools would be evaluated from grades 3 through 12 in student performance in math and ELA and they identified a chart that demonstrated that if you grew with adequate progress, aka adequate yearly progress, or AYP, if you grew a certain rate every year, by 2014, we would have 100% proficiency. That, I know everyone will be shocked to hear, did not happen. Ooh. And so for years, school uh, states uh, for their and representing their school districts would apply for waivers. Please don't persecute us because we haven't met this impossible, unattainable goal yet. Uh, we're making progress. We're making progress. And so um, they created a system called Safe Harbor that would allow schools to demonstrate if they could make 10% progress in mm-hmm. ELA, 10% progress in math from year to year, they would be demonstrating that they were moving forward enough. But the focus on only ELA and math uh, was stipulated by the federal government in No Child Left Behind. With ESSA, the Every Student Succeeds Act, it puts it, it eliminates those uh, constraints put forth by the No Child Left Behind Act, and it says to the state, you can decide what you want to go into evaluating your schools, what subjects you want to evaluate, if you want to evaluate graduation rate or um, completion rate in elementary and middle school, if you want to evaluate culture, however you want to do it, you can decide, and then the federal government's going to approve the plan. So in New York State's plan, um, they have identified that, yes, they do want to continue to evaluate uh, math and ELA, but that they are also going to evaluate science and social studies. And what they've decided to do is to develop a uh, what they're calling a weighted composite index, uh, which is a fancy way of saying they're going to average a bunch of scores together. Um, they're going to weight the performance of students in English and in math um, by multiplying that performance by three so that they still, math and ELA, still have the highest weight. Um, and then science by two and social studies by one, which it totals nine scores, right? ELA accounts for three scores, math accounts for three scores, that's six two from science, and one from social studies, that's nine. So they'll take all of those scores divided by nine to get one average score. And then they're going to rank all of the schools in the state according to those scores, and they're going to identify the lowest 10%, the next band would be 10 to 50%, and then 50 to 75, and then greater than 75. And then accountability measures will begin to be put in place for those schools that are in the bottom 10% and specifically the bottom 5%. So if I can summarize kind of everything that you'd put there for, you know, teachers listening to this. So the four core subjects are all part of the accountability measures for New York State schools now with reading and math carrying the greatest weight. Yes. Um. Sorry, yeah. Courtney, were you going to say something? No, I just, it, as always, it raises interesting questions for us, right? Is it going to re-emphasize social studies and science in a way that maybe they haven't been over the past years, right, with the emphasis on, on English and math scores? Um, are we going to see an uptick in training for those teachers or in hiring teachers so that you have a better student-teacher ratio? 
just be interesting to see if schools' priorities or emphases change a little bit in, in face of the fact that now those scores matter more, mm-hmm. right? And what's that trickle yeah. down? Kind of curious. I think kind of like what you're getting at is for a lot of schools, their social studies classroom will become an extension of the ELA classroom and it becomes reading, but now maybe there will be more focus on the content development in there as well because there's testing with that. Th- that'll be an interesting sure. development. One thing that we know is currently in the works, though, is that there's increasing attention to the learning expectations and accountability for schools for serving students with special needs and English language learners. Mm-hmm. Um, part of this means that there's going to be baseline data taken in the next year for New York State schools, which they are then going to use over the next two years to develop plans. Okay, what does it look like to have progress with these particular populations? How can we formulate that plans and then hold schools accountable um, to them? So that the details aren't exactly worked out yet. I think that's supposed to happen at the end of this school year after they have that baseline data, though English language learners and students with disabilities have been in schools for decades. Um, that was nice. That was, like, that was in there. there. That was subtle. Yeah. But like in there the whole time. And twist the knife. Uh-huh. Um, so but I mean, Courtney, from our conversations, you were saying you're already seeing some changes that are happening in schools with this increased attention. Yeah, I mean, not speaking with any very strong data points, but from my observations and sort of narrative being out in the schools. It does seem to me that schools are emphasizing and being asked to emphasize services for their ENL, or English as a new language, or Mm -hmm. ESL, English as a second language students. Um, There seems to be somewhat more of a a focus or a concern about hiring and training their ENL teachers, which for us on the sort of coaching and Mm -hmm. teacher support side, I've definitely seen an uptick in school administrators and also school staff being interested in educating themselves more about ENL strategies, um, about maybe potentially going back to a TESOL program. So Mm -hmm. I've heard a lot more renewed interest. And um, specifically, schools are being asked to include um, a decent percentage of ENL strategies and focus in their professional development for their teachers. So these are all changes that I'm sort of on a feeling level noticing in the schools. Um, and I, I do think statistically we've had an uptick in um, ENL populations, probably around the country, but also mm-hmm. in New York City. Um, you know, we had the hurricane and the impact in, in Puerto Rico. So we are seeing maybe climate change or, or climate issues are actually creating higher numbers potentially of um, ENL students. So there's a new, there's a renewed interest and concern about it. Um, I've also noticed that, and I know that we're, we're emphasizing individualizing um, achievement and evaluation um, for, for our ENL students. So I know that there's a more of an emphasis on if you're not quite up for, you know, fulfilling all the graduation requirements that there are some more differentiated approaches for SPED and ENL students to um, to graduate and do well. And I know, Roberta, you had said something about a disconnect with this emphasis on giving students more differentiation and individual individualization mm-hmm. um, and the school evaluation. Can you talk a little about that? Yeah, but I wanted to be able to yeah. also support what you were saying about this sort of uptick in students with needs yeah. and ELL students. And so we, I just did a little bit of digging. Good. And in New York City in particular, we have had a pretty consistent rate of uh, English students speaking uh, English as a new language over the past few years mm-hmm. at about 20% or roughly yeah. about 4,500 students. But just last year the data was actually reported um, that it's up 20%, which is about, I'm sorry, it's up 20 to 22%. And that corroborates with what I've seen in schools, where suddenly populations, at least in five that I can think of off the top yeah. of my head, populations are up to 20, 22%, whereas they used to be right. eight or seven, seven, eight, something below 10. And so there is an uptick, and we're, we're seeing the need, and yeah. we're responding. Yeah. And, and so I think that the, the state and the city also, right, they're looking at right. responding and, like, what does it really mean to serve students with these kinds of needs? Um, yeah. the last year, the data was reported out by the state uh, for the 2016-17 school year um, that the, the city had over 5,000 uh, English language learners, um, which includes 20, that's about 22% of the total population. Um, and, and this is important because 
uh, how you can perform in academic subjects when you're not speaking a language that you know uh, is significant. Mm-hmm. Um, so the state and the city, um, the, and the state for ENLs and especially for students with disabilities, um, the state has become much more understanding about the challenges and obstacles That's that right. come up for these students um, when they're working towards graduation. And in high school, at least, um, within the last few years, we've seen some major policy shifts from the state ed department identifying that um, students with special needs don't need to pass mm-hmm. all of their state mandated mm-hmm. mandated exams with a 65%, which is the minimum threshold. But in fact, they can pass, well, at first it was one with a 55, and mm-hmm. now it's many with a 55. Um, that they didn't have to pass all five, but if they didn't if they didn't get one, that you could maybe actually like uh, sweep it over if they had really good attendance. And so there are all these different kinds of opportunities, which I think that's something that we would typically say, like, thank you. I mean, these mm-hmm. are really challenging situations, and um, a, a lot of these students, they do have needs that prevent them from being able to meet the expectations mm-hmm. within the four years that they are allotted to make them. The disconnect, though, Court, yeah, is that um, that students are not held accountable to the same standard that their school is. So while a student may receive an individual waiver for a test, mm-hmm. uh, their school has not received that same <laughs> waiver. And so right. students are able to graduate with a 55, but the school is not getting um, that 55 waived. And so uh, whereas they may typically have pushed that kid to get a 65 right. uh, so they could get their one point um, mm-hmm. in, in their in sort of credit towards that AYP, that progress, mm-hmm. adequate yearly progress, now the student is getting a 55. The school gets zero points for that student right. um, in that rating. And it makes it very then important to recognize the role that subgroups play in how a school is evaluated. If a lot of students are able to graduate and get waivers, that creates a resistance to taking or retaking exams that are, you know, torturous. (laughs) That's right. Anyone could understand that. But because they're not uh, re-encountering that exam or being encouraged to Uh or because they don't have to in order to graduate, then the school is really losing out on the opportunity to um, earn credit for those students' increased performance um, as it does throughout their schooling. And so we're seeing um, these subgroups like um, students with special needs or ELL students Mm -hmm. um, really become pockets where uh, lower performance has been acceptable um, by the state for a a wide range of um, probably like quality reasons. Um, Mm -hmm. But the school is still being held to the standard of moving them past the threshold that even the state does not expect them to earn. So there's a little bit of a disconnect there. Um, Some might go so far as to say that it's a little hypocritical to say to the kid, oh no, it's okay that you um, only get a 55, but then say to the school, oh no, you have to get those kids to a 65. Mm -hmm. So weird, that seems to be um, a disjuncture between the two. Yeah, that's that's And and I think that's a difficult thing to balance because I can see where one logic might say that you know, students are in this difficult situation to meet these needs, so the bar is going to be different, but the expectation of the school is still that you meet, you know, this data point, whatever that is, and so if the school is not up to par in that way, then the student's not being punished for that, but then I guess the question that gives me is, are there then additional resources and supports that the school gets for that extra push? Because if they are making this goal for the student, which is something that seems to be um, something that the state would determine good, is there the additional push for of resources to get the right. additional academic push. I don't know if I'm making No, it's like there, a disconnect, I that's think, right. that you're pointing and to. I, I think yeah. what you're pointing to is like, okay, um, we recognize that there's a disconnect here and that you have a need that you can't yet meet because these students' challenges are significant. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think one of the challenges to being able to service those students is that because the way the data is reported, a lot of this, the a lot of this information is actually masked or hidden mm. by uh, the report itself, and it's not intentional. It's not on purpose. Um, but you know, especially yeah. if we're looking at small districts or or in New York City, where you had a major small schools movement, you look at a school that has a graduating class of one hundred kids, and mm-hmm. many gradu- many small schools have a graduating class of fewer, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But but because, um, uh, to keep it sort of simple with the numbers, let's say we have a, a, a cohort that has 100 students in it. 
If you have 20% of your students are, are English language learners and 20% of your students are special education students, um, that's roughly, you know, between 25 and 40%, mm -hmm. um, depending on how many students are both, mm -hmm. right? Uh, of, your, of your 100 students um, that have some major educational challenges, whether mm -hmm. those are learning disabilities or emotional, um, so students who have emotional mm -hmm. challenges um, or students who are learning English while they're here and trying to take tests for the very first time. Um, but because of privacy factors, the DOE does not report on subgroups less than 40 students. So even though it's 20% of the entire class, the school is not going to know how their L's did on the state mm -hmm. review. They're not going to know how their special education students did mm -hmm. on the state uh, under state accountability because that those numbers are not reported. Mm -hmm. um, and so the performance of these subgroups in small schools can really become lumped in um, mm -hmm. with other subgroups, like economically disadvantaged students. Mm -hmm. Well, you can look at there, right. right? Except that for many small schools, 90% of their students, 98% of their right. students are considered to be right. economically disadvantaged. Right. And so that doesn't tell you anything either. And so you're looking at these data reports that are really here, you know, they are evaluative, but they also can tell you like, oh, what are real, what are real challenges? Mm -hmm. But even there, the real challenges of a significant portion of your population are sort of like covered up or mm -hmm. masked um, mm -hmm. because the way the data is reported. That's a good point. And the overlap and kind of intersectionality potentially of That's all right. these different kind of categories or issues that students face. Yeah. Interesting. It's a real Roberta. challenge. Yeah, yeah, no, it's really helpful. And we're going to continue to come back to the topic of working with English language learners, including our podcast in a couple of weeks about uh, bilingual versus bicultural mm -hmm. education. And this is something that will be recurring, but I want to move us to mm -hmm. another topic um, that I think is an interesting change in the mm -hmm. mandates, and that is student suspensions are now mm -hmm. going to be part of a school's climate report. So what New York State is doing is they're using this school year as a year to gather baseline data mm -hmm. for what do school suspensions across the state look like and report out on that data. And then starting in 2018, 2019, they're going to evaluate student suspension numbers as part of the school climate. And so I guess my question is, mm -hmm. you know, what does this mean? Is this a good thing? Why or why not? How should we think about suspensions being a part of this? I, Matt, I think, as always, it's a great question, and it raises more questions for me. <laughs> Student suspensions are now a part of a school's climate report. I think the idea of measuring climate is new also, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. And so my question would be, is this an adequate or a complete measure of a school's climate? And also, why are we measuring school climate? Are we really trying to get at equity? And this is our way of talking about or trying to measure an equity data point. So are we really talking about subgroups of students who might be suspended more than others, um, i.e., you know, young or male students of color? Are we trying to get and at graduation with rates? disabilities. 100%. So what are we really trying to address here with this focus on student suspension? Now, I do, I do want to say that... I think this is in response to something that I feel has been a really important nationwide movement, um, which is this idea of, of zero tolerance and how it doesn't really work, how um, high suspension rates for students um, have been shown to kind of lead to the school-to-prison pipeline, so that if you look at folks who are incarcerated, very often if you backtrack, they've been suspended numerous times, so what kind of questions does that raise? So. I don't mind that there's a focus on this and that it's being brought to light. Um, it's thinking a little bit about some of what Obama um, and his administration talked about with my brother's keeper. Some of these other kind of movements, um, I believe, are being um, kind of alluded to um, in, in some of these policies. But I, I would like to say, what kind of a measure is this? Does it measure all schools' climate and whether or not they have a positive climate? Is it too narrow a focus? And then, of course, being in the schools on almost a daily basis, what's the impact, right? That's mm -hmm. always the question. Uh, are we going to start to under-report suspensions, suspend students less? Um, are we going to actually take steps to think more in a more complicated way about why are we suspending students and should we be suspending them less often? Should we look into some restorative practices and retrain ourselves? or? Is it merely going to lead to a numbers game? Mm -hmm. um, and I kind of wonder about all these different things. So I feel like it remains to be seen, to answer your question, whether or not this is sort of a positive move or not. It's an interesting one, 
for sure. Yeah, I, yeah, yeah. I agree with you. I think that the, it, it raises a lot of questions about the ways in which, like, what are we doing with this information? What's, what does it really tell us or not tell us? Um, I think that, like, seeing a school that has high suspension rates might tell you, oh, no, that's a very dangerous school, and they have lots of bad kids there, and I do or don't want to send my kid there. Um, but it also tells you that they take behaviors and infractions seriously. They are honest and truthful about what the issues are, and they hold kids accountable and responsible for their actions. Um, but maybe it tells you that they are over-penalizing mm -hmm. certain students uh, for actually issues that aren't as uh, major infractions. So maybe, you know, the idea that maybe you could look at a school and see that it doesn't have a, a high suspension rate, it's actually quite low, mm -hmm. you might look at that and go, that's a really safe school. Right. And But you could also look at it and go, oh, it's a school that doesn't hold their students accountable and doesn't suspend them, and they sort of walk around without accountability. And so I think that it just we have to ask the question, like, yeah. what does it really mean and what does it tell you or not tell you? I will say that it is not new. Um, I think it comes in the document. Um, it's not new. It's not new that uh, the state is reporting out on suspension rates. They have been reporting on suspension rates the same way that they report on um, how the staff members in the school, the same way they report on free and reduced lunch student population, the same way that they report on um, other sort of demographic information. So it's not new that they're being that they're reporting on it. Uh, what's new is that it's going to be considered mm -hmm. part of the evaluation of the mm -hmm. school. So it's not the state has not. Um, previously used those sort of social uh, dynamic demographics or social dynamics um, in the school's evaluation. So if it's pushing over into not just that this information is available to the public, but rather it's part of the mm -hmm. report card, so to speak, of the school, that's pretty new, and that's, I think, significant. Yeah, I, and yeah, I think suspension I numbers in isolation can also be a problem mm -hmm. without knowing what the policy for suspensions are, whether it's in districts yeah. or mm -hmm. in schools. Mm -hmm. Um, and then what the documentation looks like. So thinking about in terms of policy, you know, uh, New York City, all suspensions back, um, you know, in the 20th, early 20th century had to go through the superintendent's office. And in the 1950s, legislation made it possible for teachers to mm -hmm. suspend students. And in the first day that this legislation was um, enacted, it was something like over 2,000 students within the city were suspended on mm. that day. Mm. Um, and you saw an increasing number of students that were suspended. Right. And so I wonder, is this part of the discussion when we say who has the power to suspend? Mm -hmm. Is there due process in all these suspensions? Mm -hmm. Do the parents come in? Is there actually legal representation? Because most of the time with student disciplinary policies in schools, that doesn't really exist. There's usually something in a student code of conduct that says... Um, that the student is able to give his or her own side of the story and provide witnesses. However, the principal can determine whether or not that mm -hmm. um, evidence is admissible. Uh, the other thing is in terms of documentation, if you're looking at these statistics, to your point, Roberto, mm -hmm. what do these suspensions tell us? Um, are there checkboxes that say this is for student disruption or if this is for vandalism or if this is for bringing a weapon to school? But even something like student disruption... What does that mean? Does that mean a student ran into a class, jumped on your desk, and started yelling? Or does that mean you told a student to stop talking five times and then suspended that student? Right. I think another thing that's important to recognize is that every district is going to have its own rules around suspension and what those suspension looks like. So when you're going to enact a policy that's the same for everyone across mm -hmm. the state, but we all have different versions of what we think that that thing is, right. I think that that's really cause for a lot of confusion. For example, in New York City, there are two kinds of suspensions, a principal suspension mm -hmm. and a superintendent suspension, mm -hmm. right? But a principal suspension, actually, the student is required to, the school is required to give the student work, and they're also required, the student is required, supposedly, to, to, to show up at a suspension site. So they're actually not supposed to stay home, for example. Mm -hmm. They're actually supposed to go to mm -hmm. another school in a secluded space and do their work. Um, and they're supposed to be there for a minimum of two hours during the course of their suspension, which can last between one day and five days. Anything beyond that is called a superintendent suspension, and it has to have the approval of the superintendent. That's a good point. Um, and those suspensions are highly regulated based on the, D the DOE's 
discipline policy and you have to provide evidence and statements and submit all of that to a superintendent who's going to approve or not approve the, the suspension. But if you go to another, you know, the 20 or 30 districts in Long Island or Westchester or upstate, they're going to have wildly different um, expectations for suspensions and such. And so I think it's, a, it, it's sort of getting into this kind of um, really tricky territory when we're going to use the same word to describe lots and lots and lots of different practices and have lots of different um, ways of interpreting the implications of like what that means about a school mm -hmm. because they have this score and another school has has that score. If the suspensions totally were about agree. like uh, we're also based on the growth rate, right? Like mm -hmm. you had you had ten last year, but only eight mm -hmm. this year. You know, then I think you're comparing mm -hmm. apples to apples within a specific school. Maybe that uh, gives you a little bit more information. But I, it's just troubling, sort of thinking about it in the abstract and not really knowing how it's going to be used. Um, so really good points. <laughs> changing direction again. I, something else that. Um, was debated about in the process of the adopting for the new plan was how to rate the achievement and growth index. And so the original plan, the achievement index carried greater weight than the growth mm -hmm. index. And after public comment and resolution, now the achievement and growth index are weighted equally. So when this comes time for school evaluations, what will this mean for schools? And I guess, how does this work then? Or, or what's going to be the implications of this? Well, the... Um the achievement and growth index is really important, and we can take a pause there to try to really let that sink in. <laughs> the achievement index, right, is this idea that um, you have to hit a certain number in order to be seen as meeting that standard, right? The uh, performance on tests is a really great example. You need to hit a 65 in order to pass the exam. That is a bar that's set for everybody. It's the same bar. And so when we look at the achievement um, of students uh, within a school or of schools within a district or districts within a state, and we can look at them and say, oh, these are the schools that exceeded that bar. These are the schools that met that bar. These are the schools that fell below that bar. And that gives us an understanding of the uh, performance and the academic achievement of the students within those communities and spaces. When you look at the, but to be fair, is that a fair explanation or a fair understanding mm -hmm. of, of their work, their effort, or their achievement? If your achievement is about how far you've come or how hard you've worked or um, how much change or growth you've made, Progress. Right? And not all these schools are built the same, right? So they have different demographics. They have different with students with uh, different kinds of challenges. They have a wide range of challenges that they're dealing with and a wide range of uh, resources. So if we're going to compare schools, does it make sense to compare them on a set or specific standard? This would be that <clears throat> achievement, achievement metric, right? Um, because they're not all working with the same resources or materials, right? Uh, if you're running a race and not everybody starts at the starting line, some people start ahead of it, some people start way far behind it, is it fair to measure how quickly the runners ran? Right. Um, so this is sort of becomes a question. So the response to that or the answer to that says, okay then, let's measure them on how far did the runners run uh, in, in, based on yeah. based on where they started um, and how, how, how fast were they running um, based on where they started. And let's give more um, benefits to those who make more progress. And so then what we'll see are these progress indicators. I mentioned one earlier when we talked about safe harbor or the idea that like, well, we can't meet the achievement target that the DOE or that the state department or the federal government has set out for us, but we did make 10% progress this last year and that's got to count for something, mm -hmm. right? And so we're making progress and we're making progress and the idea that you can give, now let's reverse the metrics. Let's say those who, um, who, who made more progress last year than they did this year, <laughs> they haven't made any progress, so their progress window has shrunk. Those folks end up at the bottom, and the people who are making the most progress, 10% progress, 12%, 15% progress, they end up at the top of the ladder. The challenge, though, is that it is easier to make more progress when your performance is low, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. So when, my, when, I'm str when I'm really struggling, I can make 
more progress in a shorter period of time than if my achievement was high, that progress sure. window or that rate of progress, right? Slows How down. you cannot per, you can't make ten percent progress when you score a ninety five, right? You're you're topping out, and so one of the challenges and the disconnects between looking at this uh, system as an either or system, right, is that in one system, people who are making amazing progress, really really working hard, really finding solutions for struggling students, they can make lots of progress, but they can't always hit that achievement benchmarks. And vice versa, those who are hitting the achievement benchmark may or may not be making any kind of meaningful progress for their students because they're sort of riding high on kids who always have performed well and will continue to perform right. well. And, and that's really one of the challenges. And I'll just um, close by a little illustration. Two schools uh, in the same building um, surveying the same demographics of students, um, and one of them um, did not make their 10% progress, and therefore was identified as a struggling school by the state, and accountability rates came in, and you know reviews, et cetera, et cetera. School in the same building is considered to be a good school of good standing because they did make their 10% progress. However, when you look at the achievement of both of those schools, the school that's now in a flood of accountability outperformed the school in good standing by 15 That's or right. 20 points. So actually, their achievement was higher, but they're receiving more accountability and more sort of like uh, noses, pe you know, people in their business and, and a lot of critique. And the school that was considered to be doing very well because of progress actually has a lower achievement score. Now, the impact of that ultimately is that parents and families and, and whoever takes a look at that public data and goes, oh, well, this one's in trouble and this one's doing well. And that That's informs right. their enrollment data, that informs their perception in the city, that informs all sorts of things. And so this is a challenge. Um, I'd like to say it's not one or the other, but we really should be looking at both. We should really be looking at how are people achieving and also how much progress are they making. Which the state is trying to do. Trying but, to do. But one thing that I always find so kind of frustrating about these data points is that let's say the test is being taken in 10th grade. Mm -hmm. When you're talking about growth in data or the performance in that data, that's 10th graders in 2011, then 10th graders in 2012, right. then 10th graders in 2013. Mm -hmm. So No? No, it's the okay. individual. <clears throat> it's how they are predicted to perform. With a peer index, well, wait. Roberta? Are, but but the, based the on level? the school's previous performance. Previous performance. Or is and it based so on a peer index and algorithmic on, approach? It depends like on what you're combine. looking at. At the city level, right. at the city level, it is peer to peer that students are matched right. with fifty other students who have their exact same demographics. They have like a thirteen point yeah. uh, demographic and performance algorithm yeah. that gives the students a certain score and then they're matched with fifty other students who have that same score and then their performance is compared sort of year to year and they do uh, like outlooking like predictive scoring. But at the school level mm -hmm. yeah, go ahead. So no no, no go ahead and finish. Well the I'm sorry. Level. Then at the state level though yeah. at the state level I don't know how they're, they haven't measured progress at the state level beyond, yeah, they have. It's been cohort to cohort. So it's last year's 10th graders against right. this year's 10th graders. That's what you're saying. But they're mm -hmm. also measuring that over several years because it's this year's graduation rate, and they're only measuring the 12th graders who are in that school for several years, right? But so, then they took those tests two or three years ago. But well, but what I'm saying is statistically, yeah. like that's not actually uh -huh. good research because yeah. you have different subjects right. yeah. for the data points. But now what you're telling me about the individual students has me even more troubled because it seems that demographics are being used to create a student profile for academic performance, which mm -hmm. is creating a number which then those students are judged Expected. upon. Yeah. Uh, at the city level, yes, and that's how citywide targets are set up, is that they're based on, it's not, it's not only demographics, I would say it's demographics and some performance, some previous performance data using, um, they did like pre, so they, they did a study of it for a couple of years and they said, okay, these kids, these markers indicate these things, let's see how these kids perform, right, and then they use like the little bell curve mm -hmm. to say, oh look, this is outside the performance window, mm -hmm. this is inside it, this is below it, and 
and then they're saying, okay, well, kids should grow then. These kinds of factors implicate that these these kids should grow at this this predictable rate. And then they adjust it when the data comes in. Yeah, and there, there are some tr- really troubling things. This is so exciting, you I know, guys. But it's actually <laughs> troubling, too, because if you look at the expected growth data for students, which you can get your hands on when mm-hmm. you're setting your own measures of student learning, if you're setting them... Um, for individual students, they can be really low. And there can be an expectation that students in certain demographics or who fit certain performance indicator, you know, conglomerates, that they will not grow very much. And Mm -hmm. I have seen that used to disadvantage of really encouraging student growth because they're not expected to grow that much based on the data. And so there, there are some troubling things about it. The other thing, just to build on what Roberta said, I agree that there should be sort of half and half. Um, my daughter, interestingly enough, was in a classroom where the teacher um, was really impacted by this kind of policy because she was an eighth grade math teacher, and the school, I mean, glad to say, she went to a wonderful school, I'm very thankful, but the students were topping out on their math mm-hmm. scores on their eighth grade math test, so they decided on a school level to give them the regents exam. So the students kind of topped out, they were all getting fours, whatever number, but you know, decent, strong fours on their state exams in eighth grade. So she brought the regents in, and then the kids were still getting their fours, but they didn't move within the fours to get higher fours, and they were passing the regents' exam, or doing well in the regents' exam before they went into high school. So they were being evaluated mm-hmm. on a data set that they really couldn't grow very much, and so they were opting for higher standards, basically, for the students that they were not being evaluated on. So it's sort of damned if you do, damned if you don't, you know, you're kind of trapped at, at either end. I don't really think that these, any of these evaluation approaches are really getting at long-term student growth or real student growth. Um, but I agree. I think it's better to do half and half, you know, to really emphasize both. Yeah, it's troubling. It's a little troubling, as I said. I find, it to be, <laughs> I find the evaluation stuff to be a little troubling. Yeah, we, we, might, we might have to come back to that. Yeah, someday. I'm, uh, uh, Mulling it over. I've got, Sorry, I've got I, things going on. We've got, we've got that over. reeling over here. <laughs> you got stuff around. You got to keep up, buddy. You got stuff. Well, I just... All right, I no, it's I will. Really, it's really troubling. I, I agree. Okay, you want to get on to something else. I, 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 will move, I will move us on to something else with the attempt sure. to return at some point. Sure. Um, so one of the things that it seems um, the new kind of state um, policy that's being done under ESSA makes a strong statement that there's still local control for curriculum, that this doesn't mean the federal government's taking over, that the state is prescribing curriculum, that there is, or that there was, and will continue to be local control. So what exactly does this mean? So it's a good question. I think that, yes, I mean, judging by everything that's going on and um, by the new ESSA decisions, that we will have control on the school level Mm -hmm. and on the district level uh, over our curriculum, and that there is not one curriculum or set of curricula that are being mandated for any subject areas um, or in any core classes at all. But is that true? Well, what I was going to say is... (laughs) I think that is pretty much true. However, and I think it's a big however, um, we still have mandated evaluations, third grade through 12th grade. Mm -hmm. And students need to actually be proficient in multiple areas. We know now that we're moving beyond just ELA and math and Mm -hmm. into science and social studies. So our students need to be progressing, and they also need to be meeting achievement goals um, across the board. Uh, and, and, and those are mandated. So the regents exam, to be more specific, in mm-hmm. almost all subjects, and the three through eight state exams, at least in ELA and math for now, I would like to say are, are driving, and if not driving, impacting heavily um, the curriculum that teachers feel that they, they can teach and that they need to look for. Um, and there are new curricula within the past like 10 years that are being vetted in a new mm-hmm. way. Um, by the state on Engage New York, for example, and by the city with certain vendors even. Mm -hmm. So I'd like to say that, sure, we still have choice and control, if you want to use that word, but it's control within a system that that has mandated assessments with mandated skills and and some content in math and science and social studies that need to be covered. Mm -hmm. So is this a modicum of freedom? 
is it a quid pro quo? We still have these high stakes tests that are kind of driven by the common core standards. Uh, but no, we're not going to prescribe your curriculum. So deal with, deal with this piece of it that we're going to keep intact, the exams and the common core, and we'll allow you freedom in another realm. So I, it's a really good question. I'll say that I agree with you that the curriculum is not um, prescribed and that that's a relatively officially. true thing to say, officially, officially. prescribed. Mm -hmm. um, and I think that that's true, like, even in New York City, where the city does not identify, like, this is the one curriculum that everyone right. has to use. They do vet. They do vet. Uh, and, and identify multiple curricula that mm -hmm. have been vetted and pre-approved yes. by the district. Um, but more and they more. Have, that's right, more and more. Um, but I, I also would want to just emphasize that um, other than the high school regents exams, the three to eight state tests that have existed for math, uh, science, social studies, and ELA mm -hmm. <clears throat> prior to last year were all mm -hmm. created by Pearson, which is a major publication oh, yeah. uh, house mm -hmm. and produces tons of curriculum. And so if you're a school district or a school teacher and you get to choose your curriculum and you can mm -hmm. choose the same curriculum of the people who are making the tests that your students are evaluated mm -hmm. by and that you are evaluated by, then there's a pretty good indication that you're going to choose that um, just because the the state department has selected that vendor now that's different now um, they lost their contract a year or so ago um, mm -hmm. and so we'll see if there are in, any implications in the new vendor for those three to eighth mm -hmm. grade exams um, but the relationship between testing and curriculum yeah. is always one that's strong i agree yeah and so i mean Maybe this is an overly critical, overly analytical question, but it also seems that some of these policies are making a political statement. There was such backlash to point. Common Core because Common Core mm -hmm. was, oh, the federal government is telling us what we have to teach in our schools, which the Common Core wasn't even necessarily developed or right. pushed by the federal government in any way like that. It was states that said, you know, these are things that we're, we think are important. We've put these together and different states chose to adopt them. Right. Um, but when you talk about this emphasis on the local control of the curriculum, um, and you talk about creating standards that are specific to the state, which mm -hmm. aren't that different from the state or from the standards that were built through a consortium of states, when you talk about um, paying attention to student suspensions and using that as a qualification of student climate or the school's climate, and when we've talked about that, that really doesn't even get at all the complexities of what's going on in a school. It seems like this is educational policy that is working on two different levels, that of policy and that of... PR. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Like political yeah, they learned their bargaining. Lesson, right, <laughs> they learned their lesson. I agree. I mean, and I, I hope that they did, right? But, right. like, this, it, to me, the, the comments in the plan, yeah. the ESSA mm -hmm. plan that are talking about, like, oh, don't worry, you're mm -hmm. still going to be able to design your own curriculum. Now, one, it's good to be explicit about those things. <clears throat> I'll say I always value the ways in which New York State and New York City appreciate uh, choice, mm -hmm. that they are not trying to say that there's a one-size-fits-all solution. And I think that this is, you know, with as much critique as we read within these things, I think mm -hmm. this is a fair thing to say. It's a fair mm -hmm. thing to emphasize. But it's also clear to say that it's a it, that they're, they're emphasizing it in a form of hand-holding, in a form of communicating to the public, like, don't worry, it's not like, it, it's not like you thought it was last mm -hmm. time. Mm -hmm. You know, the, the DOE and the, the State Ed Department has not mandated curriculum since I've been here. No, over 15 it ha and years. I've been here forever. And <clears throat> no, they, it was they never have, mandated. They haven't done this. Mm -mm. Um, and, and I don't think that there's any reason for them to begin to do so. The idea of local control, though, is going to feel good to a lot of people who are concerned about state and federal overreach. And so I think that this is much more mm -hmm. about uh, public relations than it is a, about actual policy. I agree with that. I think it's a little bit of a quid pro quo. And, and just to not to constantly cycle back to evaluation and school evaluation, what impact it has, schools in New York City are still being evaluated in, in curriculum. Mm -hmm. Do you have strong curriculum? And when the district comes in to evaluate a school, curriculum is one of the areas that they are mandated to, to show. And so there's a little bit of a sticking point there for me. Well, you can do whatever you want to do, but we're going to evaluate it. But what are you evaluating? What are you looking for? Well, we're looking for something strong. We're not really going to tell you what it is, um, but we're going to evaluate you on it. And I think more and more I've seen schools being evaluated a little bit more rigorously on curriculum as opposed to instruction, for example, which is another focal point. 
And so it makes me wonder. And now we also have, and this is new for me, who's been in the system for many years, we have vetted curriculum, as mm -hmm. Roberta said. And so my feeling is, is that it's not mandated. Oh, no, it's not mandated, but it's kind of highly suggested. <laughs> and we at the DOE in New York City are mentioning mm -hmm. and putting out their links and sometimes supporting financially the use of different vendor-created mm -hmm. curricula. Um, collections some, is one, for some, example. And some curriculum has been made free. Exactly. That the DOE has purchased a, a district exactly. set, and anybody can get it. So there that's are right. definitely incentives. Well, it's not there mandated. Incentives. And these are, these are district-wide choices, that's and I right. think that's what the state means, that local is your district, right? Mm -hmm. And so whatever, right. so your district might mandate curriculum. Your district might uh, uh, provide curriculum for you for free. Your district might highly recommend you do curriculum. But the state is basically saying, we are not. Mm -hmm. And that's an important point because New York State is is sort of the, the both ends of the spectrum. Mm -hmm. We are extremely urban. We mm -hmm. have are extremely oh, urban right. and we are extremely rural. Mm -hmm. Right. And there there are, you know, the political leanings across the state depending on where you are. If you're in the New York City or the New York City metropolitan area, if you're in the Tri State or, you know, anything north of White Plains substate, right? So no, the, you're right. The, <clears throat> So the state really does have to look at a wide range of constituents, and it would be, you know, very difficult for them to to mandate or regulate a, a curriculum that that met the needs of, right. of such a diverse population. Mm -hmm. So sorry, Matt. We have a lot to say on that. No, no, and I think there's a, a lot more yeah. to be said. I think this conversation is only to really be begun. And, yeah. and a lot of what? our work, yeah, to be and a lot of our work actually more and more of it is around supporting schools to either develop or address adapt curriculum that they think is going to work for them. So That's right. we're seeing an increased need, again, like an uptick in schools saying, help, we need to be creating curriculum, we need it to work, but we also need to be managing the evaluation that's going to come down the pike where they're going to be looking at it, the district is. So it's, it's interesting. Yeah. Uh, so one last thing that I think is important to talk about in uh, this document is not necessarily a policy mandate in a sense, but there's going to be a new research emphasis on teacher retention. Um, and my question is kind of, what are these studies going to find that we don't already know? Um, and, like, what new information is going to surface? So according to a 2016 study, which there have been studies like this over the last decade, 45% of teachers leave the profession in the first five years. There's another study conducted by the Learning Policy Institute, which New York State has actually hired to conduct this research into teacher retention in New York State, that found that 90% of job openings in teacher or for teaching are teachers who are leaving the profession. That some are retirement, but over two thirds leave for some kind of dissatisfaction with the profession. It also that same study also found that teachers in Title I schools leave at a 50% higher rate and teachers working in schools of the highest concentration of students of color are 70% more likely to leave than teachers that are not teaching in those schools. So we have these studies. We have studies by the Institute that's going to now do the studies in New York State. What more can we maybe learn? And what's the thinking behind this? Um, well, well, I think the, the key question that I'd like to focus in is what more can we learn? Yeah. And then once we hear it, will we learn it? Right? Mm. Because I think one of the things that, that those stats tell us is that teaching is really, really, really hard. Mm -hmm. And the narrative of the bad teacher who is responsible for the failing school mm -hmm. is really, really, really old to me. Mm -hmm. And what I would love for this, I can't say what it will show. I can't say what will be learned at the state level. I can say what I hope mm -hmm. that folks learn are what are the conditions in yes. which these teachers and these young teachers are dealing with and what are the tipping points that are causing them to leave mm -hmm. because those are the those are the places where we need reform mm -hmm. I'm the first one to say like our schools need a lot of help and our teachers need a lot of help and but also like there are things that are in place that make their jobs easier and there are things that are in place that make their jobs much 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 more difficult absolutely and when they don't have adequate time for professional development Definitely. when they're not being paid adequately when they're walking into spaces that don't feel like safe spaces mm -hmm. when they are um, being talked about badly on the news when uh, reports of their progress are being you know posted in newspapers or are um, you know fodder for um, political uh, 
enemies to, to argue over. Um, and when everyone else is trying to take credit for the work that they did when, when the scores turn around, um, <clears throat> it can be really, really demoralizing. But, I mean, so all those things that you said right there, I think, are things that these previous studies would back up in that the DOE could know just from yeah. interviewing yeah. teachers. And so I guess my real question is, is this research that's intended to create changes in policies to make the teaching profession better for people or, or is there something else here I mean and maybe I'm being too critical about this but it, it, I don't know it's a concern that I have go for it I, I'm concerned about this too and I think that Roberta articulated a lot of the concerns that I have um, and I think that Matt you're right that we we should know this already right we should know some of the conditions that we need to put into place as policy or to support schools on the school level to support teachers to to love their jobs mm -hmm. and to be inspired to stay I wonder, and this is where maybe I'm, I'm getting even more critical, I'm wondering if, again, it's a little bit like the suspension rates. Mm -hmm. We know that the pressures of poverty create a lot of issues. And if we look at the schools, the Title I schools are where teachers are leaving mm -hmm. um, in many higher numbers. And we know that the pressures of poverty for teachers, for students, for communities are, are high. I think we know that. I don't think we have to do a lot of research on that. So are we kind of blaming teachers uh, or, or, or trying to research what's happening with teachers for failures of our system mm -hmm. and conditions of poverty that create a lot of um, pressure and, and difficult situations in our schools? So again, it's like in the name of equity, potentially, mm -hmm. a backdoor entry point to address equity, um, teachers are leaving, but why are they leaving? They're leaving because conditions are not right, but they're also leaving because of underlying pressures and issues related to poverty, if you look at the numbers. So again, we're not addressing those huge kind of elephant in the room issues of poverty in our communities and our Title I schools. Again, we're going to go and do a nice little research project on, on the teachers. So do you see what I'm saying? I think it's this very, very backdoor way of addressing, of paying lip service to addressing issues that are really issues of of, of poverty and inequity um, that won't really get at some of the core until we address some of those core issues in our country and in our communities I'm not convinced that we can create conditions that will really support teacher retention does that make any sense that yeah. long-winded and to just like piggyback off that tension that you're kind of illuminating I guess we should mention that in the original plan um, last spring um, this wasn't in there. Mm. The The desire for the study into new teacher retention came from the public comment period right. when the public was mm -hmm. concerned about mm -hmm. this teacher turnover right. issue. So it's trying to respond to the public. Yep. But I, I'm wondering if while we have mandates yeah. for other things, there maybe could be a mandate there. Um, I, I, agree. I hear that, yeah. And also I'd, I'd be curious to see, I'd, I'd be curious to look at teacher retention. Is it in charter schools and Pure public schools, is it a combined number? Are there differences? You know, I'm just curious about parsing out some of the well, issues. I, I hope one of the questions they ask is, how long did you plan to stay in education? Because we know that um, things like the Teaching Fellows or Teach for America or other kind of alternative licensure programs offer uh, new teachers the opportunity to get a free or subsidized master's degree with a two-year teaching commitment. Mm -hmm. And so if I get into teaching to get my master's degree and then move on to my real profession, um, then I don't have any intention uh, to stay in the field longer than my two-year contract, essentially, and then I can move on. And I think that there's a real question to ask about how much of these teacher retention uh, rates are uh, a result of I've chosen to leave a career that I thought I was going that I thought I was destined for, and how many people are choosing to leave a career that they had no intention of staying in yeah. in the first place. And so the Learning Policy Institute actually disaggregates by alternative certification programs right. and finds that they're twenty five percent more likely. So it to definitely to, to leave, leave the profession. Oh, absolutely. But what I find interesting about that is that they are more likely. Um, to leave the profession, but that the type of school is still actually the larger determinant. Interesting. Yeah. And I wonder where the nexus is between that yeah. alternate. But that's also right. because those teachers are placed in those schools. Exactly. Mm -hmm. That's what because I was just going to say. Have a hard time and they need to. I would also just like to piggyback because it seems to me that this alternative certification is is really causing a lot of stressors. And I'm going to put it out there and give a shout out to teachers whom I'm actually working with, who are really trying to juggle 
the stress of not being trained in this alternative assessment pro mm -hmm. in alternative assessment programs, not really being trained, being thrown into classrooms, as we said, challenging situations, and then they're also trying to make up and um, fulfill all their credits while they're in a very difficult teaching situation. So it's sort of a a no-win situation. They can't really keep up with their schoolwork. They don't really have the training to do what they're supposed to be doing. They're being evaluated all throughout it and not always being offered the support that they need. So it's um, just not a great scenario for teacher retention. I'll say I welcome these alternatives. I'm excited to learn more about <laughs> New York State teachers and, and what are the driving factors that Let's um, go. are helping them. And, but and we I know the real the solution things, is the New Teacher Network. I was just well, going to say you go. <laughs> that TC graduates uh, are invited to, because we think this is a really key issue, mm -hmm. that all TC graduates are invited to join the New Teacher Network, which was, is a network of um, early career teachers in their first three years of teaching. Um, they receive free professional development from CPED for those three years, including workshops and uh, hotline to our, our coaching team who can support them. Um, and that model is something that we've looked at um, expanding to teachers um, beyond just TC graduates, but for now um, it is an alumni network, um, but something that we're really proud to offer here because we do believe that teacher retention is extremely important. Uh, you don't learn how to do the job no. until, until you've done it for three That's or four right. years. That's right. And so. I just want to give a plug to piggyback on Roberta that if you're not a graduate of TC, we're here for you. We're here for you anyway. A lot of the work that we do is to help support you teachers out there who are in your first one to five years um, and need the support that everybody deserves to get in the beginning of teaching. Yeah. Um, so speaking to giving more access to some of this information for teachers, um, I think one of the things people want to know is that they probably listened to this and said, I didn't know that was happening. Or when, when did that take place? That's right. So for... Behind your back. <laughs> so exactly. for people who want to try to keep up on these mandates, obviously they can continuously check in with us. What's because, up? Yeah. <laughs> because we it. will continue to update as we can. But where should educators be looking for this information? What are... Is there a website they can find? Is there an email list that they can join? What should they do? It's really, really tricky. The best and most reliable place that I find for information is uh, the News and Notes, um, which is a sign-up from uh, the State Department of Education, um, and the uh, Commissioner of Education sends that out. I think it's like a monthly newsletter, mm -hmm. and it includes um, updates about uh, grants that are available. Um, it includes major policy updates and some uh, public press releases. If you start clicking on things and going in there, you end up at the State Edu Education Department's uh, main website. Uh, and there are some like alternative groups that you can sign up to say like, oh, follow, I want to follow this, or I want to receive the press releases. You know, everything is available online, but it's it's hard to get mm -hmm. it to come to you. Mm -hmm. um, so my best bet would be to definitely sign up for the news and notes coming from the New York State uh, Ed Department. Um, and so they would go to the NewYorkStateEd.gov website? Yep, okay. yep, you can go there and you can get it. You could also probably just Google news and notes, um, nyseed.gov, mm -hmm. uh, and, and get a hold of it there. You just kind of click to subscribe mm -hmm. and they send you these monthly newsletters. Um, but I would also say, like, if you're really interested, and keeping up, maybe put a calendar note on your on your calendar that just says like check out NYSED um, because there are a lot of press releases and um, they do a great job with transparency in terms of like making everything available to the public, but they don't make a good aggregate um, or search tools. And so it can be really hard to just get things to come to you when you're really mm -hmm. interested in it. You really do have to go and kind of poke your nose around and open things up and follow follow the rabbit hole around. But the news and notes at least gives you a summary of the most pressing things um, and that the state wants you to know about. So that's my uh, suggestion. I'm signing up, Roberta, because I always up. forget to do it and it's a great idea. For those of us who are nerdy about really keeping up with the mandates and have some homework to do. <laughs> um, you guys are looking at me. I feel like I'm going to sign up right now for the news and notes, <laughs> but uh, I do get Chalkbeat, and Chalkbeat is actually local to the state, mm -hmm. so you can sign up for Chalkbeat New York if you're in New York. Probably a good idea. Um, you could also... Is there a Chalkbeat that's more national? Because I've been looking for... I don't think so. Um... It will update you on things, but it probably won't give you as much comprehensive information as you might want about some of these things. 
And then, you know, on even a lighter note, um, if you go to the NPR, National Public Radio website, you can actually search around and maybe you can find um, a show that updates you on some of these mandates and what's coming down the pike possibility. Yeah, and so in addition to kind of those recommendations for where to keep um, up with this information, are there any other final thoughts that we want to share with people that are listening, that are interested in this policy, that want to keep up, or just um, things that you think might be helpful in navigating them? I don't have anything that would be helpful. (laughs) But I will say my final thoughts are TBD. (laughs) Just about all of this, like... The, the policy and abstraction is really, really complicated, and, and there's a, a very big distance between who between the idea of the thing as it was first conceived and written down in the proposal and into the thing when it really comes out. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and here we are, all of these policies, you know, it was just approved in January, though it's retroactive from September because it's for the school year. That's a big question mark what they're able to implement between now and the end of the year, that's a big question mark. We're in schools every day, and they're still talking about how great it is that they're aligned to the Common Core. And I kind of feel like, oh, yeah, but you have new standards now. Nobody knows about this. You know, so I just want to say, like, TBD. We'll see how it goes. Uh, And uh, if we don't like it, then I think that it's okay, because in a couple years it'll change. (laughs) I'm with Roberta on that. That's the that's that shifting ground beneath us, right? I mean, Carmen Farina is going to be leaving supposedly from New York City. Let's see what happens. Let's see if there are some changes even on the city level. Um, I also just want to say let's keep our eyes and ears open. And parents and teachers, if you see or hear about changes that are happening, do a little research. Dig a little bit more deeply. Why is this happening? What is it in response to? Because it's one thing, as Roberta said, to talk about abstract policies, but to see how they filter down and impact schools, classrooms, students, and even families um, is a whole nother uh, thing to keep our eyes on. Yeah, I mean, I think one of the things that often happens when there are changes to state policy or district policy is that no one really knows, and then the data for the year comes out, and all of a sudden there's this kind of retroactive response like oh god we have to change all this to fix this data Mm -hmm. right there's not like a grandfathering in like there is of other large policy that Mm -hmm. eases someone into the transition it's just it's very stark and it becomes very responsive and and so I think getting informed Mm -hmm. and keeping tabs on okay what am I doing where's my school at this point will then make that end of the year conversation at least a little bit smoother as you're able to then think about, okay, planning for next year. How do we maintain the great things that we've been doing while continuing to navigating this changing policy? Well put. Well, thanks for joining us, and we'll make sure to talk to you extensively again next week. Bye, everybody. (laughs) Bye. Policy cut!